welcome to church on this Palm Sunday. Uh, Holy Week is a fascinating week in the Christian tradition. I hope that you will take the time to reflect upon the events of Holy Week because I also think that it's a great uh, way of rehearsing and remembering the narrative of redemption as an act of spiritual formation. Um, because Holy Week is full of w the wonderful contradictions of life. Um, have you ever seen a weaving loom on the backside? Uh, it, it's so, I, 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 every so often, periodically, I'll just go back online and just look at weaving looms because they fascinate me because on one side of it, there's just this chaos. There's these knots and there's strings laying down and there's just, there's kind of yarn or some kind of material going all over the place and you look at it and it's really difficult to even see any kind of discernible pattern. But then you take just a few steps on the other side of the weaving loom and you see beauty from the chaos. You see order, you see symmetry, you see art that moves you. And I reason why I like to take time to meditate on the weaving loom, uh, weaving loom is to remind myself that beauty is built upon the chaos in the back. It, it doesn't happen in spite of the chaos. It is happening because of the way this is being used and woven to create something that's beautiful. And, and Holy Week reminds me of that, that th there is beauty from this week as we think about Holy Week leading up from uh, Palm Sunday to Easter Sunday as we think about that. But in the midst of the beauty that is told by this redemption, there is chaos and ugliness that's part of it. And that's the reality of our lives. That's the reality of, of what we experience. And it's very much illustrated in the life of Christ throughout this Holy Week. Holy Week is also fascinating because it is bookended by two Sundays of celebration. Uh, Palm Sunday, which we're going to look a little bit about that history in just a few minutes. Uh, and then, of course, Resurrection Sunday, Easter Sunday, when we celebrate the resurrection. And what is really interesting about that reality is the same crowd and the same energy that is celebrating on Sunday turns dark by Thursday. And that same crowd and that same energy is reversed and manipula manipulated and spun around. So now this crowd that celebrated her incoming king is now ready to murder the author of life by the time Thursday gets around. It's one of the reasons why I don't get excited and moved with tales of someone who has strong religious zeal because the more zeal for your ideology, the way easier it is for those who want to manipulate the crowds. You're way easier to manipulate if you're zealous and emotional than if you are at peace in responding to the peaceful leading of the Spirit. And you see all of those dynamics taking place right here in the journey of Palm Sunday. And Palm Sunday is an important idea, but what I want to do this morning is we'll reference where these, uh, th this event takes place in the Gospels, but what I want to do is kind of go back in the history of the Hebrew Scriptures and look at where the, kind of these prophecies are foretold um, and the expectations that went behind the events that took place that day. Because again, 
uh, it's important for us to remember that the majority of our Bible isn't Christian scriptures per se. They are, they're Hebrew scriptures. And, and, and the, the issue is, of course, as a Christian, I'm going to come to the scripture and whether I'm in Genesis or Matthew or Revelation, I'm reading those with the lens, the Christian lens. So I'm reading those looking for and seeing and perceiving perhaps uh, uh, echoes and elements of the story of Jesus. But it is important for me to recognize that there's moments when I can't read the scripture simply as an evangelical Christian because they are written literally centuries before evangelical Christianity gets organized. And therefore, it's really important to me to realize they're not really envisioning this thing that I'm living because this hadn't exist, ex, uh, existed yet. And in fact, even if you get to the Christian scriptures, these are written in a context that's before organized Christianity. So even, even the Christian scriptures are, are, are birthed and they're written in a context very different than the tame and domesticated power-hungry thing that we will eventually create. And the reason why that's important is because when I set that aside, I can enter back into the origins of the story and maybe possibly be a little bit more responsible in the way I interpret those scriptures. So this morning, we're going to look at the triumphal entry, but we're going to go back to the prophets to see the prophecies that this celebration uh, uh, was rooted in. So, of course, you can, you can read the triumphal entry passages in Luke 19, verses 28 through 40. And in Matthew 21, verses 1 through 11, this is where Jesus is entering in Jerusalem, and he's leading up to that moment where the worst of religion and the worst of empire are going are gonna to coalesce together and uh, orchestrate the execution of the Son of God. And so you're probably familiar with those. Sometimes these are the days I, w I miss the fact that we're not more liturgical. Uh, it, it would be kind of fun to have palm branches in here if you've ever attended any of those services. But this is the Sunday in which more liturgical churches might celebrate with palm branches because that's what the crowd did as they saw Jesus coming in. Now here's the thing. The reason why they did that is that they are aware of the prophecies. Typically, you don't celebrate a king riding in on a donkey. If you look at the history of man, and if you look at the history, particularly in towns in Europe, but there are older towns here in America, you can find at the center of town, there's a statue. And on the statue is some warmongering leader or hero, depending on which side of history you're interpreting it from. And that hero or warmonger is always on an animal. Does anyone know what that animal is when you look at those statues? A horse! very powerful horse, a war horse, a stallion. There's always a dude on a horse that reminds them of their history. Our king doesn't ride, doesn't ride in on a war horse. Our king comes in on a donkey. And that act in and of itself is a prophetic statement that, 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 that juxtaposes the heart of God and the kingdom of God and the heart of man and the kingdom of man. And so, so as he comes in, we, let's just read the summary passages. Luke 19, 38 says this, The crowds are gathered, and they are crying out, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest heaven. Matthew 21, 9, Then the crowds who went ahead of him and those who followed shouted, Hosanna! 
Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. Now again, this is the first point in which we're going to have to remember the participants in these stories are not Christians, and they're certainly not evangelical Christians. And the reason why this is important is because even when we look at this word Hosanna, it is rooted in a Hebrew term that means, oh, save now, or, or just simply, please save. It's a cry for help. But here's the thing, the original participant praying this prayer save now and the evangelical Christian that is using the word save are not talking about the same things. You have to remember there was not a sophisticated, elaborate doctrine of hell as some sort of afterlife torture chamber for the unbeliever in the minds of the Jews. We developed that in the history of our Christian doctrine after the fact a little bit later on down the road. That is not what they're thinking. So when they say, Lord, save me, they are not saying, save me from the afterlife of the torture chamber called hell so that I don't go there forever. That's what we're saying by and large when we enter into the faith. That is not what they're saying. They're literally saying, save us from this foreign occupation so that we can be liberated and victorious and so that we can be on top once again, which of course is how it should be. Cry of every oppressed person feels that way. So they're crying out, please save. And they're seeing hope that their Messiah King is coming and their liberation is close at hand. It's not a spiritual term. In other words, they're not saying save us from hell in the afterlife, but rather save us from the oppression of foreign rule or save us from the Romans. This is the climax of Jesus' mission to announce the arrival of the kingdom, the government of God, and the rule of the Almighty. And this is why you're going to begin to see why does the crowd go from all this enthusiasm on Sunday to where they're dark and easily manipulated by the leadership on Thursday where they're crying, crucify him, crucify him. This same people go from, Lord, save us now, let's rejoice to crucify that man. Why would they do that? Because you and I would do the exact same thing. If we were under some kind of oppression and we had this strong sense of nationalism and, and preservation of our culture and our ethnicity and we have this strong uh, uh, um, revolutionary spirit among us of wanting to overthrow our oppressors and overcome them so that we can be liberated once again. And let's say any person, but let's just say because of the situation here, I show up saying, I'm the guy. I'm the guy. All this liberation you've been waiting for, all that you've been talking about, all the prophecies, here I am. That's cause for great rejoicing. Great Kill those guys. Give us our own grab for power. Restore us to our place among the other governments of the people. And then I say, oh, wait a second. I'm coming to give you a spiritual liberation, a spiritual kingdom. That would be disappointing because it might mean that you have to learn how to trust God even though your circumstances are not what you want. 
And it might be there's someone saying, guess what? Even in this chaos, beauty can be found because that's the heart of this story. Where there's chaos, there is beauty. Where there's death, there's resurrection. Yeah, that would be disappointing. It would be understandable why. Well, then give us the zealous soldier because at least he was willing to kill for our cause. You're trying to lay down and take it. This doesn't make sense. So this is part of the energy that is shifting the expectations of the crowds. And Jesus has kind of set this up. He, he had to have known what would have been in their mind. Because the way Jesus does it is not a random event. And we don't have time to go into it and go back and read it. But Jesus sets this up ahead of time clearly. He's got the, 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 the donkey all reserved, ready to go, sends his people out to get it and to bring it to him. He is being very specific in the way he is walking out these events. It's not random. Jesus prearranged the use of the coat or the donkey. And why has Jesus been so calculated with this detail? To highlight the fulfillment of the prophecies concerning the arrival of Israel's king. And so one of the things that we have to do if we want to really enter into the narrative is to recognize this story is not about Jesus and Christians. This story is about Yahweh and Israel. And what is happening here is we are seeing the culmination. We're seeing the crescendo. We are seeing the book in conclusion of this plan of God, his sovereign redemption that we started following back in Genesis. What is happening this week is the conclusion of that. And then afterwards, what happens is all of us trying to get our heads around this new order that God has established through overcoming death, through love, overcoming hate. And, and then responding to that reality. But what's happening for them is they're still participating in a former way of life, the old age, and they're seeing the collapse of that as the transition is taking forth. And that's happening right here in this story. It's a fulfillment of Israel's prophetic hope in the arrival of her Messiah. However, what is being wrestled with in the New Testament is the fact that when Yahweh returns, he will establish a new covenant, and that covenant will be an inclusive reality for all people. That is why we're going to put on our ties and cut a rug next Sunday morning. Because we then get to participate in that reality. So the prophecy that I want to look at is rooted back in Zechariah chapter 9. We're not going to look at all of it, although it would probably be a benefit if you have time later to kind of read more of the context. We're just going to look at the couple of verses this morning that speak to this event. So in Zechariah 9, verses 9 through 10, we read this. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Now look at verse 10, which is connected to it. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim, the war and the war horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bow shall be cut off and he shall speak peace to the nations 
His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. Now again, we will bring this around and we will celebrate Jesus' victory over death and over sin as we contemplate how that victory is secured in the life of Christ during Holy Week. And as we gather here next week to celebrate resurrection life, and we will celebrate that, 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 that sure victory that is spoken of in the resurrection. But we have so over-spiritualized this from its original context that sometimes we, we miss the fullness of what God's heart and his intent for earth. Because once again, whenever we're talking about this prophecy that speaks about um, the fact that he'll be bringing, having salvation with him, they would have understood that in a very earthy manner, not just in the afterlife. So look at how this happens, because this is how the heart of God is revealed in the life of Christ. And, and, and although, I mean, I've really, I'm trying to grow up, I'm trying to mature, I'm trying to be less cavalier, flippant, too comedic, too whatever. Yeah, this is me trying. You can imagine what it would be like if I wasn't. Um, I really am, but I just look at this and I see it just when I read these prophecies. <sighs> to celebrate God's heart to destroy the mechanisms of violence and, and his longing to rise up a people who will live, embody, and speak peace. And yet we understand mission and duty as being antagonistic to the world that we're called to speak peace to. This, to me, is a fundamental contradiction that is a cancerous disease at the core of some of our spiritual formation. And we have issues with understanding God and his grace and our neighbor and all these things that we will never resolve through ideological discussions unless we go on journeys to find where that exists in our own soul, identify it and rip it out and recognize our faith was never meant to be celebrated by horses and chariots and the battle bow. This is when maybe we will live a life where we will allow our tanks to be transformed into tractors and our swords into in, in, into shovels and that we will we will recognize that we are only participating in the mission of God when we are a force of redemption not when we're voices of condemnation and the heart of God is revealed all throughout the scripture if you have the courage to look for it and discern it and bring it out so when the king comes, his purpose in part is to cut off the chariot, the war horse, and the battle bow. When he comes on a foal of a donkey, he's coming to speak peace to the nations. And he does this in part from the cross. This is why when you look at creation and what they've done to, to orchestrate the execution of what Peter says, the author of life, his response is, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. So even immediately, right here, in the context in which our Lord could have executed strength and victory and defense, he nonetheless walks in humility and submission, 
And in that process, he even reveals the heart of God, not with a prayer of judgment or retaliation or vengeance or judgment or condemnation. Instead, what comes out of the dying, fading body of our Lord is a word of forgiveness. Father, forgive them they don't know. It's baffling to me that the church thinks it ought to go in any other direction than that. Because this is what our Lord modeled for us. So he speaks forgiveness in the cross, and this, this, he is not establishing, and he's, he's testified to this in his, in his life and ministry on earth. This isn't a physical kingdom in Israel. This is a kingdom whose sovereignty reaches to the ends of the earth. And the disciples quickly pick up on what Jesus is revealing in kind of this prophetic reenactment, if you will. They, and that's why they celebrate. But look specifically at what they say. This is just not any expression of celebration, but specifically the way that Israel in her history celebrated the re-enthronement celebration of royalty. That's what they are utilizing. That's what they're quoting from whenever they're uttering these praises and these prayers as Jesus comes in. They are in part singing Psalm 118. It is quoted in Luke 19.38 um, that we read earlier, Luke, um, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. This is quoted from Psalm 118, and it was a hymn of royal entry at, an, at the annual ritual of re-enthronement, a celebration of the sitting king's ongoing sovereignty. They would use this in part of the ritual. So they are participating in something that is not, in their minds, just spiritual. It's also political. They are seeing their king being re-enthroned, and they're recognizing that this is the statement that Jesus is saying about himself. Jesus is the fulfillment of the king who comes to bring the peace of heaven upon earth. He is the fulfillment of the king who comes to bring the peace of heaven upon the earth. This is why one of my very favorite Christmas hymns is Joy to the World. And these realities are echoed in that song, particularly in the verse, he rules the world with truth and grace and makes the nations prove the glories of his righteousness and the wonders of his love, the wonders of his love and wonders of his love and wonders, wonders of his love and wonders, wonders of his love. That's what we'll sing. That's what we'll celebrate. And why is the wonders of his love? Because he doesn't come with judgment and vengeance and wrath. He comes with love, and he comes to bring the peace of heaven upon the earth. And when we resist him, his response is, forgive them. They're going to learn today. They're going to learn that this is not the end. That in two days later, you will see Love conquer hate, and life conquer death. This is why, though, they are so devastated when the trip to Jerusalem ends in Jesus' death. That was not supposed to happen. He was not supposed to die. 
And he certainly wasn't supposed to make it so easy for them to get him. I mean, even his own right-hand man takes up arms and severs an ear. And what is God's act to his followers' zeal? Rebuke. And to heal the damage that his follower did in his name. May we be part of a generation that is used to heal the damage that's been done in his name. May we be a generation that keeps the sword sheathed and participate in the healing act that Jesus does after the sword is pulled. Because that, my friends, is the heart of God. That's what it means to represent him to the world. His death on the cross is where we most clearly see the forgiving heart of God. You see, they still hadn't understood that this king has arrived to conquer the enemies of sin and death, not the Romans. They're still rejoicing in the God of their expectations, but Jesus is revealing a God whose sovereignty extends well beyond the boundaries of human expectations and demand. And you're talking about a God who offensively operates well beyond the boundaries we set for our grace and mercy and forgiveness. He extends and he lives in that space beyond those boundaries that we've created. He has come to offer the peace of heaven on earth. Now, I am not saying that we've gotten it all wrong with calls of personal response. I believe we need to issue those calls. This peace can only be experienced and expressed if we receive Jesus' kingdom and we surrender to Jesus as our king. And we are committed to following Jesus above our ideology, not a Jesus remade in the image of our ideology, which is a darn hard thing to do as a contemporary Christian in America today. If you're not thinking about it, you're likely building up a Jesus who reflects your ideology because it requires thoughtfulness to see, is this really just my preference that I am projecting onto Jesus so he's easy to follow? Oh, that Jesus, yeah, vote Republican. I get it, I can be faithful to that Jesus. Or vote Democrat, I get it, I can be. Or is it a Lord who calls me to live beyond the boundaries of my ideology? That's the Lord we're looking to follow. And until I submit to him as king, then my ideology will be my king or my ego will be my king as manifested and communicated via my ideology. So we want to be free from that to follow the king and to work for his kingdom. Now, I think that there's one very important application that it would just, I'd just be happy as Larry to see our generation of believers really embrace this. Can you imagine what it would look like for a church that doesn't view itself as a force that's supposed to stand against the world. I mean, I'll be honest, this is anecdotal, and my little life and my little experiences in no way qualify me to make an authoritative blanket statement across all humanity. But I'm just saying, by and large, I have never been in a church that was there for the world. 
I was there for a church, most of my churches built an, an understanding of Jesus based on their ideology, and we were there to defend that ideology against those who would question it or not believe it. And we would, be, we would justify consistent antichrist behavior in the name of honoring the ideology of Christ. And that feels to me, if I didn't believe in the redemptive mercy of God working in my limitations and my ignorance, I would feel that I've wasted over half of my life because that seems like such a foolish endeavor to call the life of faith to me. But there's this whole new world that exists on the other side if you stop seeing your calling as to stand against the world and rather that you're called to be their advocate in the name of Jesus, bringing the grace of God to bear upon their lives. And as was said about St. Francis of Assisi, you're willing to stand up and own an identity that you're called to walk the earth as the pardon of God. But we've been modeled we walk the earth as the condemnation of God. And this is antithetical to the kingdom that Jesus is building. So my question as we come to a close and as we contemplate this story this morning is simply this. Are you living as though the world that God sovereignly rules is for you or against you? It seems like it's a simple question. I would implore you Freeze this on your computer screen. Take a picture of it in your phone. Whatever your means of self-reflection is, sit with this question this week. You might go into the question thinking you're, you're believing and living one thing and you're actually believing and living another. Let me tell you, if you live your life as though this world is calculated to be against you, you will be exhausted. And all the joy that would be robbed out of your life over time. But if instead you begin to participate in the advocacy of the Spirit on behalf of humankind, you will find yourself dancing in the, to the rhythm of the heart of God. And is it hard work? Absolutely. Does this work exhaust you? Yes, but is the satisfying exhaustion of a job well done, not the inner turmoil of the exhaustion that comes when you, when you adopt a bitter and cynical outlook on the world. So which are you, are you living? When you get up, is this a world that has been remade in the, from the redemptive work that we celebrate in Christ and that Someone says, look, there's death. And you go, yes, but look, there's resurrection. Look, there's suffering. Yes, but look, there's also healing. Look, there's hate. Yeah, but look again, there's love. Do you ever read that quote from uh, Dr. Ro uh, not Dr., um, Mr. Rogers? I don't think he was a doctor. And he said, whenever there's a disaster... It's going to get all the press and all the news. What you want to look for are the people that are responding to quietly help in the disaster. That's where the resurrection, that's where love, that's where life is blossoming. And we can live a deeply fulfilling life if we will just learn to flow in the rhythm of God's heart, who is an advocate for humankind, not their enemy. We have an enemy. It's not God. We have an adversary who is an accuser. 
Why do we do ministry in the name of Christ, but in the strategy of the accuser? It doesn't make sense. Why instead do we not participate in the spirit of advocacy that we see all throughout this story of redemption and participate there? Too many of us live our lives as though Jesus is not complete and we need to fight on his behalf. Make no mistake, discipleship is a lifestyle that has conflict. Why? Because we are working to manifest Jesus' kingdom in any sphere where it's not evident. So I'm not talking about the absence of conflict, but it makes a world of difference of how we are present in that conflict. Followers of Jesus continue his mission of working for God's justice in every single domain of life. And that will mean conflict. But here is the key. We are working from victory, not for victory. We are not trying to get God to win. He's already won. We're just trying to get the message out so that any other force that's illegitimately rising up and claiming authority through oppression, we confront that because it's a lie because the authority resides in the arm of Christ not in the systems of man. We are pushing back darkness that has already been defeated, which is why we don't have to have a defensive posture. We are advocates of humanity. We are not adversaries of humanity. And the more I live my faith as an adversary of a humanity, the more I'm going to experience spiritual disappointment, mental breakdown, and ultimately physical breakdown because I'm not meant for that life. I was not created for an adversarial life. I was created to flourish in a spirit of advocacy. And the more I cooperate in that call and in that response to what I was designed to do, the more my life will manifest peace and joy even in the midst of my suffering. Look at this one more time, Zechariah 10b. He shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea, from the river to the ends of the earth. During your time, however, whatever it is that you are doing to engage in spiritual practice, whatever it is in this season that you are pursuing purposefully to engage in spiritual formation, I would like to encourage you to consider a practice, maybe just for the next month, just in honor of this Easter season. Take a moment to purposely confess that God is the loving source of the universe. And and confession is a good word if you like that word. There's a word I like better whenever I'm doing this. Uh, Declaration. I am making a declaration And when I make this declaration, I'm not just just setting the intent of my mind. I'm not just releasing this celebration into the universe. I am reminding the atmosphere of my heart from which I want to live, the posture that I'm supposed to take into the world. You know, if you look at the Psalms, there's a lot of talking to yourself in the Psalms. Why so downcast, O my soul? Put your hope in God. So there's all this going forth. 
We've talked about this a lot, that the key to spiritual enlightenment is to go from being a person who listens to themselves to being a person who talks to themselves. You, you, you've got to take ownership and direct this narrative that's never going to stop. It's always it's like a river that's constantly flowing, but you do have a say in how much pollution is in that river. And so one of the things that helps me do that is this declaration, reminding yourself, whenever I feel this world, I, I am living, I'm going out into a universe in which God is the loving source of that universe. This you see what this means? God is the source of the universe, and what the New Testament celebrates is that God is love. So that further means that love is the foundation of all that is held together in God. The purpose of this confession is to create space for you to ask the Holy Spirit to lead you to live as an advocate rather than an adversary. The dictionary.com says that an advocate is a person who speaks or writes in support or defense of a person or a cause, etc. A person who pleads for or on behalf of another, an intercessor. I mean, let me, let me tell you how this works. And this is the bummer part about preaching, is that I thought I would just come and preach all these things I already had all together all the answers but literally i am preaching right now and the holy spirit is like saying you have made this individual your enemy and as you're sitting here trying to look all spiritual on palm sunday i'm calling you to repent and learn how to approach that person as their advocate so i get it i the struggle is real because it's like really preoccupying me right here in this moment i wish the holy spirit had a pause button this is something we're supposed to take care of privately not right up here in front of everyone. But it's just the energy of it is so gripping me right now. An advocate is a person who pleads for or on behalf of another. It's an intercessor. But an adversary is a person or a group or a force that opposes or attacks an opponent, an enemy, or a foe. Is the posture of your life adversarial or is it advocacy? Resolve in dependence on the Holy Spirit to live as an advocate for yourself and for your sister, for your brother, and for your neighbor, and for your enemy. It's not easy. This is the way of Jesus. If we don't allow this truth to so penetrate our souls that we give ourselves to it in transformation and lay down our right to violence and vengeance and retaliation and follow the way of Jesus, let the Spirit of Jesus move us in a place of mercy, compassion, forgiveness, then really next Sunday is just about getting a hard-boiled egg. That's the extent of its value. It'll feel good to sing the happy songs and to wear the new clothes. But unless this story is transforming me from an adversary to an advocate, might as well binge Wednesday on Netflix. Because that's what it's meant for. It's not for us to talk about and merely sing about. It's for us to enter into 
and to live it. And I want to end with this application as I was praying this morning. I've talked about your neighbor, your brother, your sister, your enemy, but here's what I know with all my heart. Until you live as an advocate for yourself, you will never give that away to someone else. I try not to do this very often because it was overdone in the traditions, but even though I may have moved beyond some of the culture of my traditions, I still very much believe in an active, present Holy Spirit that speaks to people through the gifts of the Holy Spirit that we're intended to use to edify others. And what was gripped on my heart was this. And this may not be for everybody, but this is the only way to move forward without bitterness. Many of us were taught by people who never learned how to love themselves. And we were infected with their disease. One of the first things we need to do is to recognize the way of Jesus is a restoration that happens within here that I then can share to others. I can't fake it. If it's an ideology that I try to give away, but it's not a reality here, I, won't, I will never get beyond that. I will, remember what Jesus said, love your neighbor as you love yourself. You are always only going to love your neighbor as you love yourself. And so if you are your own adversary, that's all you have to present to anyone else. If you are so bold, there's a great exercise that's really uncomfortable. <laughs> Thank you. Someone said yes. <laughs> um, I have done this exercise. I don't do it all the time. I've learned to be a little more strategic because of how uncomfortable it makes people. Get a notebook. One, you're going to want to throw away or burn. And take every time, a few times a day to reflect on what are the things you're saying to yourself. Sit down at lunch. Reflect on your morning. What was the internal dialogue? What was the nature of it? Write those things out. Even if it was things you said up here that you would never say out here, write those things out. I mean, I, I had a very spiritual person, very well, way more mature in their ethics and morality and spirituality than me. It was silly for them to even be there, but we did talk in, about this. And this person couldn't even bear to bring the notebook in. In fact, other people brought in only one person in the, the history of this have ever let me re read it. And I'm glad because the rest of them sounded like that. That was probably, they were probably protecting me. But you have to do this. It, it doesn't matter what you confess and say if you're not living it up here. And sometimes you need to set and you need just to write down what that inner dialogue is, is, is that's going on. My experience with myself and others who have done it, they have come to this revolution, revelation. They say things to themselves consistently that they would never say to anyone else. My friends, if you're only rehearsing the narrative of non-redemption as a reflection of yourself, you will never be able to see the people of the earth as someone you should advocate for. The Holy Spirit's advocating for you. Why don't you participate in that? I don't know what that means, but I really think that this is a real stronghold of idolatry that we have to bring forward and let go of. 
we got to let go. You are perfectly imperfect, my friends. You will never have it together in this side of life, ever. I finally found a reply for someone who accused, who, who, who tried to shame me for my inconsistency. Figured out the, the slam duck response. I'll be consistent when I'm dead. But till then, I'm going to keep growing, and I'm going to keep changing, and, and I'm going to keep taking the next steps that the Spirit has put in front of me to take, even if they scare me. Because at this point, there's been enough return on that investment, I can't walk away from it. I know it's real. So would you all stand as the worship team comes forward? I really want you to take a moment to pause and allow the Holy Spirit to speak to you about the way you speak to you. Are there other applications? Absolutely. Is just about us feeling better about ourselves? No. But it is about us honoring the wisdom of our Lord and recognizing the love that we extend out here won't ever go beyond the love that's taking place right here. And it's not just us loving ourselves, it's us participating in the, God, in the love that God has layered upon us. My friends, if even in this moment you recognize antichrist rhetoric in your dialogue, lay it down and let the Spirit set you free so that you can now be a channel of His love rather than just a reservoir that, of a black hole that tries to collect it for yourself.